Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. And as we uh, continue on in our study of Revelation, I encourage you to turn in your Bibles or to the Pew Bible, to Revelation 21, and we'll be reading through chapter 22, verse, verse 5. Let's hear God's powerful, life-changing Word. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. For he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son." But for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come! I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, like as clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates were the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. They were inscribed. So on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 
12,000 stadia, stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethysts. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God himself will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. Pray with me. O gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this magnificent, majestic vision of what awaits all who are trusting in you. We thank you for the hope and encouragement that it brings to us. And we pray now, Lord, that you would bless us as we look at these, at these verses this evening. Bless us now, we pray, by your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as we come to these final chapters in Revelation, the Apostle John records his vision of the final chapters in history in which the Lord comes again to establish a new heaven and a new earth. 
The Lord gave John this vision to encourage the church throughout all the ages. And this final vision of what awaits us was much needed at the time of John. For the early church was under assault from forces from without and forces from within. There were fierce forces from without the church threatening it as the early Christians struggled against persecution from an oppressive Roman rule that sought to crush them. And there were also forces from within. False teachers had infiltrated the church, and frictions and fractions flared up, disrupting the purity and the unity of the church. And yet we see in this vision that despite all the pressure and all the pain, nothing, nothing can hinder or diminish the Lord's kingdom. It will advance in victory to the end, for in the end, Christ will reign triumphant in a perfect and pristine new world. Throughout this passage, rich, vibrant, biblical themes weave together to form a beautiful tapestry of the apex of history when Christ returns to inaugurate a new heaven and a new earth. And by this vision, we see that all of history is on a trajectory. It's on a trajectory moving towards this grand and glorious consummation in which creation is recreated. It is earth refashioned. It is Eden 2.0. The world is made whole again in such a way that all evil is vanquished forever, and there will be never again a future fall from grace. It will not be possible. Revelation was written to bolster the Lord's beleaguered people to persevere through calamity and through chaos that was all around them. So it was written just as much for us today as it was for those early Christians. As we watch our culture drift further and further away from biblical truth, where everyone does what is right in their own eyes, and we live in a climate increasingly hostile to biblical truth. The message of Revelation is hang on. Hang on and hold on to Christ. Because at the very end, Christ will have the final victory. We see this in verse 6. Where Christ says that he is the Alpha, he is the Alpha, the one who began history, and he is the Omega, the one who brings the world to its final chapter. And at the last chapter, the Lord returns to live among his people in a new heaven and a new earth. 
And in this vision, we see the final fulfillment of a promise made long ago in which the Lord said to the Israelites in Leviticus 26, uh, verses 11 and 12, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, for I will walk among you, and you will be my God. And you will be, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. And throughout redemptive history, the Lord had dealt, dwelt among his people in various ways. Before Adam and Eve fell from grace and were cast out of the garden, the Lord had walked with them in the cool of the day. And in Exodus, he made his presence known through the cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night to lead them. And he also made his presence known through the tent of meeting. And then moving forward in time, as Israel became an established nation, his presence was represented through the temple, through the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And then the Lord tabernacled with his people. And we celebrate this truth through the Advent season the first coming of Christ, who is Emmanuel, God with us, who took upon himself our humanity and dwelt among his people. And he lived as the incarnate man to be a perfect substitute for us, bearing on the cross the judgment that we deserved. And then having risen from the dead, he ascended into heaven and he dwells among us now by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And should we depart from this life before he returns again, our souls will dwell with him in heaven. But one day, one day he will return. He will return to finally and fully vanquish all sin and suffering, and we will be transformed those who are alive at the time and those who have died in the faith will receive resurrection bodies like that of our Savior, and we will live in a world, in a refashioned earth that is free from the bondage of the curse which all of creation groans under. Revelation 21 is the flip side of Revelation 20. In Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, those verses depict the eternal judgment of those outside of Christ. But in Revelation 21 and 22, we get a glimpse of the abundant blessings that await those who persevere to the end. And it is all, all out of God's grace. Well, what will it be like? Well, John sees a vision of a new Jerusalem. And this imagery, imagery reverberates in the sense that this city is both a dwelling place for God's people and it is also an image for God's people. And notice that in verse 2 and 10, the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. 
And what we see here is the reversal of the Tower of Babel, in which mankind attempted to reach up, to go up to heaven in rebellious pride against God. No, this, this image of the Lord's great grace to us in that he comes down from heaven to dwell with his people in a physical realm, a refashioned eternal kingdom. And what will it be like? Well, we can convey our future home in three ways, and we'll briefly cover each. The new world order will be personal, it'll be perfect, and we'll have bountiful provision. First, it'll be personal. Verse 3 tells us that the Lord himself will dwell among us, but he will not be in some sequestered part of the city. No, he will not be separated from his people, but he will dwell amongst his people. No division, no barriers. It'll be like Eden all over again when the Lord walked in the cool of the day with our first parents. Now, it is blessing enough just to be in his kingdom. But notice how this vision depicts the kind of access that we will have to our holy, pure God. First of all, we are not lowly serfs in our kingdoms, in our Savior's kingdom. But what will we be called? We will be called sons and daughters. In verse 7, we see that the one who perseveres to the end, the Lord himself says, I will be his God, and he will be my son. And let's take it a step further in terms of access and intimacy. In verse 2 and in verse 9, in chapter 21, we are called his bride, which speaks of enduring love for us, his protection, and his closeness to us. Ephesians 5 depicts the sacrificial, of, sacrificial love of Christ, who has loved his bride by cleansing her by the word. And so we have this picture of intimacy and protection, this image of our Lord as our husband speaks to his covenant bond that he has made towards us out of his mercy and out of his grace, that he will forever be the faithful husband who will never, ever leave us nor forsake us. And notice how the Lord will show his love and compassion for his redeemed people. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Oh, what a poignant picture of how our Lord will show his compassion for us. Knowing the suffering that we have been through in this life, after all, he knew himself what it meant to suffer as he suffered on the cross, paying the cost for our sins. So he knew what it was to suffer and he knew what it was to grieve so that he could identify with our own. And like a loving husband and like a compassionate father, 
Revelation 21 says that his hands will reach out and they will wipe away every tear from our eyes, removing forever the pain that we have experienced living in a broken world as a broken people. He will bind up our brokenness and we will live in a new world where there is no more sorrow, no more sickness, and no more suffering. And we will be His forever, in close proximity and in complete intimacy. In chapter 22-4, we read that His name will be written on our foreheads, a symbol of who we are. He is our identity, and we belong to him intimately. He says to us, you are mine, and I am yours. Your name is written on, my name is written on you. You have total and complete acceptance in me. So we have these wonderful, astounding images of the loving care that the Lord has showered down upon us. Does it not strike you with a sense of awe that the infinite, holy, immense in being God, who is pure in character, that he would have anything to do with us, that he would condescend to us out of such a fierce love for us who are not worthy of such love. Our life in this new world will be deeply personal in our relationship with our Savior. No barriers, no brokenness. It will also be a place of perfection. It'll be a place of perfection. This description of the city's architecture reveals the quality of perfection. The city is measured out to be a perfect cube, reminiscent of the Holy of Holies in the temple where the Lord revealed his presence. But unlike the Holy of Holies, where access to the Lord was barred by a curtain and only the high priest could enter it but one day on the Day of Atonement, here, in this vision, the whole city has perfect access to the Lord. It is perfect in its completeness and fullness, emphasized also by the number 12. There are 12 gates representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and the 12 foundations symbolize the 12 apostles upon whose teaching the city is built. And so the architecture in this vision is evocative of the unity and the continuity between the Testaments and the ingathering of all God's people from those before Christ's first advent to those who come to faith until his second advent. And the image of the new city is one of perfect beauty. 
It is made of brilliant, pure, and precious stones, which, as one commentator, Vern Poitras, suggests, are reflective of the stones in the high priest's ephod, which he wore to enter into the Holy of Holies. And those twelve precious stones represented God's people before the Lord. In terms of the number twelve, symbolizing the full complement of God's people, The walls are 144 cubits thick. The number 144 is 12 squared. And the city is 12,000 stadia, which is immense in size. It is 1,400 miles just on one side. And 12,000 is divisible by 12, again representing the fullness of God's people. And the immensity of the walls and the foundation of this city speaks to the security and to the stability that the Lord's people will enjoy in the new world. No evil can befall them. They dwell safely in a stronghold where there is peace and protection because there will be no enemies to thwart or attack us. And then finally, The new world's perfection is represented by one little phrase in verse 1 in chapter 21. And the sea was no more. Now that's a curious phrase because we think of the ocean as something majestic and beautiful. Why wouldn't it be in the new world? But to the ancient Near Eastern mind, the sea was a place of foreboding and darkness and doom. After all, it was the sea that swallowed up the earth in judgment at the time of Jonah. And in Psalm 69, verses 1 and 2, the psalmist describes his plight, his distress, as if he's being swallowed up by the sea. And so this new world will be free from all that the sea symbolizes to those living then. It'll be free from darkness, from evil, from death, and from doom. And it will be a place of bounty. We see this in chapter 21, verses 23 through 24. The new world will shine with bountiful, brilliant light because the Lord Jesus, who is the light of the world, will be the source of the world's illumination. Our celestial sun will be made obsolete, and the Son of God will be our light, shining his presence upon us. And since there will be no more night, there will be no need to close the city gates, which were locked at night. So the gates will be open, and that's reflective of all the Lord's people streaming in from every nation, from every tribe and tongue, bringing tribute to their king and to their savior. There will be a rich diversity in complete unity under the reign of Christ forever. And there will be bountiful water as well, a symbol of refreshment, a symbol of abundant life. Living water is what the Lord Jesus offered the thirsty Samaritan woman when he said in John 4, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. 
The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then in John 10, we learn that this living water which brings eternal life is the Holy Spirit himself. When Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the new world will be a place where the life-giving, abundant blessings of the Holy Spirit will be experienced in full measure. And then we see in Revelation 22 that the city is like a garden. And we have a return to the Garden of Eden. It is Genesis 2 renewed with all of its lush beauty and having the tree of life bearing fruit. It is paradise restored. Bountiful provision, protection, and a deeply personal relationship with Christ are just some of the blessings, just some of the blessings that we can glean from John's vision of what awaits the Lord's people. So how does this vision encourage you? How does it strengthen you in your faith? We live in the now and the not yet. We experience now a foretaste of all the blessings that await us when Christ returns to rid this world of sin and usher in a new heaven, a new earth, a world of peace, perfection, and bountiful provision. We experience now his abiding presence, but what we have today... What we have today, beloved, as wonderful as it is, is just a dim reflection of his presence that we will enjoy in the new heaven and the new earth where there'll be no more sadness or suffering but abundant life and light. It is astounding. It is astounding to consider that as perfect as heaven is, it is not complete. No, there is one more chapter yet to write in redemptive history. There will be a time to end time when heaven will come down to earth just as the Lord first came. But when he comes again, the next time, he will not be a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. No, this time he will come as a victorious king who will forever vanquish sin and death because he has come the first time to die for our sins and so pave the way for us to have new life with him. And that new life will be consummated. It will be made complete when he returns to renew the earth and renew our bodies, and we will be made completely like him, for we will see him as he is So how does this vision comfort us now? In my years as a pastor, I've done more funerals than weddings. And one of the hardest funerals that I ever did was for a little boy. His mom knew that he would not live long as he was born with severe disabilities. 
So his death was not unexpected, but it was no less painful. He died in winter, around Christmas, if I remember correctly. And I will never forget that graveside service when we committed his body, his soul to, into the care of his Savior and his body to the ground, awaiting for the day of Revelation 21. And at the graveside, what struck me the hardest was this little white coffin laying beside an open grave. A little white coffin against the freshly fallen snow. After I gave the committal and the benediction, the boy's mother stayed behind, and I stood near her. And in a sudden, stark moment, the mother knelt at that coffin in the snow, and she threw herself over it, covering it like a black shroud. And she cried out, No, no, no. Scripture describes the grief we bear as the sting of death. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 how the Lord will destroy the sting of death when he returns. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. And he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then what shall come to pass? The saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This Advent, we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Beloved, it has a double meaning for us, doesn't it? As we sing it, we reflect on our first Savior's coming. But when we sing it, it's like a prayer as well for us, a prayer for his second coming. When we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice. Rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. Let's pray together. O gracious Heavenly Father, how we praise you 
for you, this glorious vision that you have given to us, your church, your people, of your wonderful provision, of your peace, of your protection, of your astounding love towards us, and of your presence, which, in which we will abide with you forever, where there'll be no separation from you. So we give you all praise for your word, and we ask that you would instill these truths deep within our heart, that this vision would be an encouragement to us in times of suffering and sorrow, and, Lord, that it would be a, a motivation and a, a, a desire for us to reach others, that they may know what we have come to know through Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.